You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast, where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. I'm your host, Brandon, and this week we have special guest Karen Diggs, and she's a chef, a nutritionist, and her Kickstarter campaign for a new fermentation gadget has well exceeded its original goal with current pledges at over $100,000. First, congratulations, Karen, and second, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brandon. I am very, very excited to be um, on your podcast and to talk about fermentation. And I am super excited to talk to you about this gadget because when I first saw it, I was like, wow, that not only is stainless steel and it looks uh, looks great, uh, I just it looks like it is actually really useful. So maybe we should just start. What is this crowdsource gadget that you have? Okay, so crowdsource is a kitchenware that fits on any wide mouth mason jar. I got the inspiration because, well, you know, as you know, as a fermenter, you go through many trials and tribulations. And I've gone through all the various devices, you know, using a traditional ceramic crock, using the German harsh crock, using other methods, the jar in a jar, using rock, using weights. All of those methods are okay, but sometimes you will have a batch that fails, sometimes you forget, it dries up. So the challenges were there. And then one day, I I live in San Francisco, and I'm not too far from Chinatown. So I wander into a shop called uh, the Wok Shop, uh, W-O-K Shop. And they had a little um, glass jar that was shaped like a traditional ceramic urn, um, you know, with kind of like a round belly. But on top of it, there was a moat. So if you can, for those of you who are familiar with the German Harschkrog, it has that same moat, but it was on top of a very delicate looking jar. And then it had a cap that goes on top. So I brought this home and I thought it was just beautiful and, you know, it's made out of glass, but it was very delicate. And I was really afraid to use it because I'm kind of clumsy. And I thought if I knocked it over, that's the end of that. But I was looking at this moat and also thinking about the German Harschkrog. And I thought, wouldn't it be awesome if we can just shrink this whole thing down to fit onto a mason jar? Because, you know, mason jar is ubiquitous. I use jars to store all my foods in the refrigerator, you know, canning, preserving, when you use it for Christmas to give away to friends. So anyway, this idea literally came to me while I was in the shower. You know, shrink everything down, fit on a mason jar. So very fortunate uh, for me. Um, my friend Eric Klein, who's the co-inventor of CrowdSource, you know, I was just chatting with him and I said to him, Eric, um, I have this idea. And Eric has a background as an engineer and an inventor. He actually comes from a family of inventors. So a couple of days later, he came back to me and said, you know, Karen, I think we can actually do a prototype and I can even help you write a patent. So that was about a year and a half ago. So, uh, you know, with Eric's help, we refine the project, we refine the project. And because he's able to do technical drawings on CAD, um, we were able to print several versions of it using 3D printers, which was really, really cool. So we played around with it until we came to a final um, design that Eric perfected. So at that point, we were able to take it to a manufacturer and have them do a sample run in stainless steel. So then once we got that going, um, with the help of an industry expert, we were able to get these working samples, but we didn't have the money because it is very costly to produce a big run. And because we had no experience with distribution and so forth, 
we decided to do a Kickstarter campaign. And um, that was challenging in and of itself. You know, a Kickstarter, you may or may not be familiar with, you know, it's crowdsourcing, but the gamble is, is all or nothing. If you don't meet your goal, then your campaign will not be funded. Um, unlike other crowdsourcing platforms. So with Kickstarter, it's very popular. I've actually backed um, quite a few Kickstarter campaigns myself. So that's why I prefer to to choose uh, to launch crowdsource on Kickstarter, although, like I said, it's a little bit of a gamble. But anyway, we, we launched it um, on July 22nd. And here we are. Uh, we are funded at over 100K. And we still have two weeks to go. So it's, uh, it's very positive for us. And I think it's worth noting that you were at your goal within, wasn't it about three days? Yeah, we, we set our goal at $35,000 because we didn't want to put too much of a goal, but we wanted to be realistic. So we put it at $35,000 and we hit it in three and a half days, which is pretty phenomenal. It was just um, astounding to see the number of fermenters that came forward and supported us. Well, I think it's because it's one of those items that's like, wait, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it, and it looks, it's, it puts like a fermentation into the realm of sexy in the kitchen. But you hit it right on the spot. So as I was thinking about the design, I, you know, most of my friends and, and students that I teach is kind of like preaching to the choir. You know, we don't mind struggling with, you know, a plate in a jar weighing it down, all kinds of ways to keep the fermentation submerged underneath the brine and anaerobic. But I was really thinking um, ahead, long-term, at a bigger audience, where sort of your, you know, Martha Stewart or, um, you know, your well-heeled housewife or house husband without the heels maybe <laughs> would be would be encouraged to try fermentation at home but for them you know you need to clean it up you need to make it streamline and i really wanted to make an attractive design that people are proud to have on their kitchen counter and you know as almost a piece of art because when you see the fermentation going on it's really lovely to see the change and to be able to produce something that makes a good fermentation while looking attractive was important for us. Now, with that little moat that's on there, because in, yeah. if, if people are wondering what it is that we're talking about, probably the best thing to do is go to the Kickstarter page and that link will be in the show notes um, right. at, at firmup.com slash podcast slash 78. So if, if you're still wondering, go look at it now if you haven't seen it. But otherwise, when, when you're pouring water in in that video, does that uh, evaporate pretty quickly? You know, I've been testing for well over a year in my kitchen, which is in San Francisco. So keep in mind that we don't get very extremely hot and dry days here. Usually the water in that moat will stay for about five days here in San Francisco. Occasionally you do need to just kind of check it and fill it. But you know what? Because of the dual protection system that we have, if your moat dries up, it's not a disaster because of the spring and press that is creating downward force on your fermentation, keeping the vegetables submerged underneath the brine. So, you know, if you kind of overlooked it and the moat uh, didn't have enough water, your fermentation will still be okay. It will be ideal, of course, if you can check it every few days and keep that moat filled. Um, I think it's a great project for children to kind of give them a little responsibility and say, hey, you know, um, keep your eye on the moat. Make sure it's always filled with water. 
I, and that's, I mean, with five, every five days or so, and again, depending on where someone's at, that's really not too bad because it's just a, it's just a little bit because I know like I have experience with the harsh style Crocs and, and I have to fill those up as well. Uh, and, yeah. and generally it's fill it up with more water. So this is pretty much just like a little, little drip of water would be all that it really seems to need. Yeah, exactly. And I think the fact that because you can see through it, um, you can kind of see what's going on and, for people who have done a few fermentations, we know that once the bubbles stop happening, once the fermentation has settled, you can kind of watch for it. And, you know, some fermentations only take about five to seven days. Others will take longer. So it really depends as well on what you're fermenting too. Well, I think that's another thing to bring up is that you can ferment all kinds of things as in size-wise. You can go up to the the two-quart size, which, you know, at least I know for myself, lends itself to fermenting things for longer the larger the batch is. Yes, yeah. Have you ever found, like, have you found any glass jars that are larger that also have that wide mouth? I mean, I never have. Is that, is that as wide as it goes as a two-quart? Yeah, the two-quart, uh, as far as the ball mason jars are concerned, there is a European uh, version, which is called the, um, the company's called Bormioli Rocco, and they have a series that's called uh, Quattro Stagioni, which just means four season. Uh, it's made from Italy, and they have the same wide mouth diameter, so it will also fit on those jars in the one liter and one and a half liter. The one and a half liter is just ever so slightly bigger than the um, two quart mason jar. Hey, it still makes a, it still makes a little bit of difference. And now, now you've got me in the search for new glass. <laughs> they're, they're actually widely available. It's just because they have this like European mystique is it's more expensive than mason jars. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Um, and then, so did you set out with the, the mindset that mason jar was what your vessel was going to be? Yes, um, that was, you know, really the the driving force or the driving creative force behind what came to me in the shower, because I love mason jars. It, to me, is quintessential Americana. It speaks to the homesteading DIY movement that we're all embracing. And it's ubiquitous and it's cheap. So, uh, and, you know, something that you don't mind giving to a friend because you know that somehow a mason jar is going to come rotating back to you. Sure. Yeah. It definitely has that fermentation community aspect to it as well. Right. And now with uh, the mason jars on your Kickstarter page, you also talk about, because the one downside of, of mason jars I find is, is the lid is the lid is the thing that doesn't hold up so well to the lactic acid. Uh, and yes. you talked about possibly in the future having stainless steel lids. Yeah, actually it's not possibly now that our campaign has been funded and we're really committed to making the best product possible. We are at this moment, um, well, more in particular, Eric, because, you know, he is the, um, the design manufacturing specialist. He is looking at different companies that will produce a stainless steel uh, ring for us so that there is no rust involved uh, with um, you know, using it in conjunction with crowdsource. But then also I know that there is a demand for the stainless steel ring. So we are going to be uh, producing it. Even demand for stainless steel rings. So you might even sell those separately in the future, possibly? I, th I think, yeah, we'll just look at what the market uh, would like us to do. And yeah, certainly we'll make it available. Because that is that is the one thing a stainless steel lid. I mean, I don't know if it's used a lot how uh, how long the life would be on a stainless steel mm -hmm. lid, but I'm assuming it's way longer than the lids that I use for anything fermented. 
Yeah, and you know what, uh, Brandon, let me just clarify one point here. So when you talk about the lid, um, you know, there is the the ring part, and then there's that little flat piece. What we will be making is just the stainless steel ring initially, because, you know, manufacturing is it's a long drawn process. And to be able to meet our goal of fulfillment for the Kickstarter, we are just going to work on that ring first. And then eventually in the future, if we can, we'll do the lid part. Well, it's even for, and and that's very good to clarify that. And at yeah. the same time, it's, it is the ring that I usually have the problem with because, right. yeah. um, because the, the bubbling action of if I've put a, filled a jar too much, like I often try and do, uh, even still. And so <laughs> then I get the, the bubbling over even when it's, uh, maybe as a mason jar will seal, but it generally won't seal. Uh, at least I don't crank it down really too tight because I don't want an exploding jar if I'm not using right. any kind yeah. of method besides a closed jar and I check it every day. But, yeah. um, those bubbles uh, and that liquid that seeps out the edges whenever that does happen just destroys the lid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's definitely something that we're, really aware of and that we, you know, um, we want to solve. That is, that is great. And uh, does this seem like with as well received as this was that you will continue evolving and, and looking into other things? I know you still haven't even finished this Kickstarter campaign, but it sounds like you're really looking to, to make things better in a lot of these small little tweaking ways. Like, do you yeah. think there'll be more? Uh, we are, you know, we are doing a couple of improvements. Um, I don't want to go into like too much of a technical detail, but uh, you know, our working model had a couple of little improvements that we wanted to make. You know, one is definitely the stainless steel ring. And another is there's a little washer that goes underneath the moat. So now we're, we are going to make it um, the best that we can so that it is completely 100% dishwasher safe. We really want the crowdsourced unit to last. Um, you know, people, I, I want people to be able to throw it in the, in the um, dishwasher uh, clean it, you know, unless they take like a razor blade and go, go at it. Um, sure. it we want it to be really, really strong. Well, I think it's, I'm super excited to hold one of these in my hand and see how it, how it <laughs> works because it, it looks great and everyone needs to go to the website and are there any stretch goals? So, so the thing about our Kickstarter campaign is, you know, the crowdsource team is only Eric and myself. And so it's been quite a journey to to be able to manage manage it in such a way that we are serving you know people's questions and requests and things like that, keeping the social media hype going, and you know just maintaining the whole Kickstarter momentum. So it's taken us a little while to do the stretch goals because we really wanted to do something that was um, that would serve our audience, but that wouldn't add to. Um, the stuff that the amount of stuff that we need to do to fulfill the shipment. So we wanted something that was definitely doable that wouldn't delay the timing of getting the product out to our backers. And then we wanted it to be of value. So it took us a while to figure it out. So I actually posted our first stretch goal this morning as an update. And if we are able to hit 125K, We've partnered up with a really great organic, sustainable spice company. You may have heard of them. Um, they are called Spicely, and they are out of California. So I actually have a secret uh, golden spice blend that I use to make sauerkraut that is golden. So imagine your regular sauerkraut, but you know it's really bright yellow in color because I use turmeric and four other spices. So if we are able to hit 125K, all of our backers at the early bird and above will receive a packet of this um, organic exotic spice mix. 
<laughs> and, um, you know, because turmeric is really good too. As you know, it has been well researched for being anti cancer, it calms inflammation, is good for circulation, and it also tastes great uh, when you add it to your sauerkraut making. And here you are leading into uh, a few other things we could talk about because you're talking about the nutritional aspects of even turmeric. Yeah, yeah. So maybe before we even get into that aspect of things, maybe let's let's talk about you as a chef. Uh, okay. Like what what kind of brought you to this place uh, finally? Like you started as a as a trained chef. Mm-hmm, I did. Um, okay, so you know I have been a chef for uh, for quite a number of years, and I've I worked in you know different restaurants and hotels. I attended the California Culinary Academy here in San Francisco, and then I traveled back to Hong Kong, where I was born, to work at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, and then I also opened a couple of small eateries there. So my experience as a chef gave me the background in cooking, but it was really not until I studied nutrition that everything just kind of gelled together. It was the perfect fit, and it was really in nutrition school at Bowman College that I learned about the value of fermented foods, um, that they confer such great health benefits because it's good for digestion, it has probiotics, it also helps with your uh, digestive hydrochloric acid or your stomach acid. And that's when I really got into fermentation. And then, you know, thinking back to my childhood, growing up in Hong Kong and visiting different countries in Asia, I realized that actually I ate a lot of fermented foods, but I just didn't realize that it was fermented. You know, I was just a kid and you would be served these things that kind of smell strongly or even stinky, (laughs) but they tasted great. And I realized that, well, we have such a rich tradition of fermented foods from around the world that I had overlooked as a chef. Um, So that's when, you know, when the nutrition and um, my expertise in cooking really came together that I realized the value of fermentation. And that really started me on the journey. Well, can we just take a little tangent here and talk about some of those, uh, the ferments, some of those stinky things that you, that you grew up with? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, one of the worst things is, well, so, you know, my mom, I think the reason I became a chef is my mom didn't cook. Um, or she cooked maybe two dishes. One was like a tuna casserole. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. But, uh, she did, you know, one of her favorite things to make was, in in Chinese is called uh, in Mandarin it's called tou tofu, which means literally stinky tofu. So you would take um, like a packet of tofu, cut it into little slices, and she would layer layer it out in a pan. I think sprinkle some salt on it, and she would put the whole thing in the rice bin, and she would leave it there for days until it stank like uh, strong cheese. You know, like Roquefort cheese. Sure. And then she would just either eat it like that or uh, lightly steam it. Or the other uh, way of doing it, which is street food, deep fry it. You know, deep frying it will probably kill all of the probiotic benefits, but it actually tasted really, really good when you put a hot sauce on it. Okay. Yeah, that so- sounds actually really <laughs> delicious. And that's something that I've wanted to try before, stinky tofu. Yeah. Um you make it sound really simple. Is that in, like you're saying in the rice bin, would that be uncooked rice? It would be, yeah. It would be like, you know, because in, in Asia, most people, most families would have a big rice bin. Oh, so an empty rice bin. Uh, no, it would be a rice bin with actually the rice in it. Okay. 
Yeah, it may stink up the rice a little bit, come to think of it, but that's how my mom used to do it. Hey, that's that's sounds delicious to me. I mean, you compared it to Roquefort, <laughs> kind of. So, uh, and and would you say that um, most of them were a little different? Like, were there any uh, fermented vegetables that you that you remember from your childhood that you now make differently, or do you find that fermented vegetables around the world are, are generally kind of similar? You know, actually, I, I find that there is a difference. You know, in Japan and in China, for instance, there's a type of fermentation which you don't really submerge it in brine. You know, it's a mixture of the koji, which is the rice um, starter and salt, and you mix it and you put it in an urn. And it's pretty much, um, you know, what you would call a dry ferment or uh, in, in Japanese, the nuka uh, ferments or vegetables. So that's one type. And then the other one... Uh, more from China is what we call pao tai, which literally means pao just means submerged vegetables, you could call it. And, and um, typically it's a shorter ferment, not as long as the sauerkraut. I mean, I know with Sandor Katz, you know, he likes to ferment for months in oh, yeah. his big vats. But uh, in China, as far as I know, typically uh, the pao tai that most people made at home would be a short fermentation, more like three to five to seven days. And where do you fit in with your uh, vegetables that you generally make? Do you do you go on the shorter side of fermenting longer or kind of do you ever do everything? It really depends on what I'm doing. Um, with traditional sauerkraut and, you know, since I've been experimenting with kraut stores, I do like it at around two, two, maybe two, three weeks. But with pickles, I find that um, a shorter time is better. Pickles get a little funky because they they develop this white uh, film, which is not the bad mold, but it can develop a a slight white film on the pickles themselves. And especially when the ambient temperature is hot, I find that five days or so makes a great um, pickle. And then with the, um, for instance, I'm I'm really, because it's summer, I'm enjoying the lacto-fermented salsas. Sometimes I add some peaches or plums in it. Those I only ferment for about three to five days. With the pickles, do you find that they work any differently in the in the crowdsource system? Uh, are they? Does it? Is it a little cleaner, easier, nicer? Because pickles are one of those things that I think sometimes for the beginner are surprisingly more challenging, even though it's the first thing that a lot of people think of, uh, of yeah, for pickled food. Yeah. And you know, I'd be curious to maybe you have this experience already, or someone out there can tell us. I'm curious to know what what is that about that mild white film that develops on the pickle itself. It's not floating on top, so but you know it doesn't deter from the taste or anything. Maybe it's some kind of indigenous microbe that lives on some types of cucumbers. So I find that with the crowdsource, because you are doing it in a mason jar, you can actually see what's going on. Whereas before in the in the crocs, ceramic crocs, I couldn't see what was going on. And I was under the impression, you know, like longer, better, right? So I had a couple of batches where they just turned out really, really funky. They were, I, I couldn't use them. They became very soft too, which, you know, I don't like soft ferments. That's something that I still have not figured out how to do is do a pickle that ferments for longer that yeah. doesn't get soft. Yeah. And, you know, what I've been using is um, organic tea leaves. Rather than, um, I know a lot of people use either horseradish or grapevine leaves, mm-hmm. but I've been having um, a lot of success with using tea leaves. 
it makes sense. It almost seems like there would be more tannin because I've done grape leaves and I didn't really notice that much of a difference for a long fermented pickle. Um, But it makes sense that tea would probably have more tannins. Yeah. So yeah, I've been experimenting with different types of tea leaves and so far a, for you tea connoisseurs out there, a medium oolong tea leaves, whole tea leaves works really well. Excellent. I'm going to have to give that a try myself because pickles okay. are still one of those things that eh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't as much. But with with this nutrition, I mean, we don't talk about nutrition nearly enough on, on Firm Up. And so it seems like a perfect time to talk about it some. Okay. Do you find with with fermented foods, what is it that you said you learned about it in uh, when you were becoming a certified nutritionist, what is it about fermented foods that is so great? Well, first of all, in nutrition land, or at least in holistic nutrition land, the current uh, hot buzzword is, um, you know, the microbiome. What is your microbiota? I think Michael Pollan probably put it on the map for all of us. But a lot of biochemists are looking at what's going on in our gut. So, you know, microbiome is the modern word. But if you Take it in the context of age or wisdom in traditional Chinese medicine or in Ayurvedic healing. In, I think, all modalities of healing, the core of good health is in the gut, is digestion. If you can't digest well, you are not going to be healthy. And related to digestion is the health of your liver. So if you are not digesting foods properly, it creates a lot of toxins. And then the toxins build up and can affect how your liver detoxifies. So in the long run, digestion is key for everything. So sauerkraut and other fermented foods are really key. They are the primal source of probiotics as we know it. And so in our modern way of eating and medicine, when everything is mass-produced and devoid of live cultures, Everything is pasteurized, you know, homogenized, zapped until there's nothing alive. Then we are not getting, we are not a generation of people who are eating a lot of live cultured foods and therefore we're missing the probiotics. And then add on to that the overuse of antibiotics and many other drugs that really create havoc in our microbiome. So there's a tremendous imbalance of good gut bacteria versus bad And as we like to say in the nutrition world, think of it as a good neighborhood gone bad. And in your gut, we need to maintain that good um, ecosystem where there are more good gut bugs than there are bad ones. And fermented foods are part of the legacy that we need to continue. And you also teach all of this stuff as well. You're at a holistic college teaching this? Yes, I am. Um, So I teach at Bowman College um, we have several campuses, but it was founded by Dr. Ed Bowman, well, a little over 25 years ago, believe it or not. And uh, we, the, the school teaches nutrition. So I also studied there. I, I was certified from Bowman College. And then we also have another program. It's the Natural Chef Program, where we teach students how to cook based on our nutrition principles. And they, when they graduate, they are certified natural chefs. And so it's really my pleasure and my privilege to be teaching students every semester because there's nothing better in my mind to combine food with nutrition and to look at the sustainability of, of our food source by empowering um, you know, people with the knowledge of how to cook but also 
knowing what to cook so that we can all stay healthy. And now I, I'm sure people that that realize that fermented foods are are also uh, have health benefits. They probably already know this, but in general, like do you do you find that the nutritional aspects make uh, cooking food? Uh, more bland or, or non-interesting? I mean, that general mindset of like a, like health food is not as good of food. Right. <laughs> so usually when I tell people I'm a nutritionist, some people might, they'll, they'll naturally assume that I'm vegetarian, for instance, or, oh, you know, she's only eating sprouts all the time. Uh, and I'm not bashing sprouts. I think sprouts are great. <laughs> so there is that mindset where, oh, nutrition must be boring. But you know, the, the latest research is that Nutrition means you are eating sustainable animal products if you choose to do so. You are eating the best organic vegetables and fruits available, or at least you should. And then um, you also engage in eating a lot of good healthy fats like organic butter, um, coconut fat. So all of these things are very, very tasty. In my mind, there's nothing um, that's not palatable about being nutritious because it's basically looking at what our ancestors ate. You know, one of the things that my mom really loved was uh, fatty foods. So, and now decades later, we find that she was right. Because I know when we were growing up, we would always tell her, you know, mom, don't, don't, don't eat so much like fatty stuff is bad for you. But lo and behold, I think in the June issue of Time magazine, if you remember what was on the color, what was on the cover, it was like a beautiful curl of butter. So that's very much a part of nutrition, <laughs> good fats, and also good fermented foods. I think fermented foods are some of the most sophisticated foods that really elevates our palate and our taste buds. And I totally agree with you. Would you say that there maybe kind of hinted at it, the fried stinky tofu, any fermented foods that you just crave or love that arguably may not be as nutritious? Oh, uh, well, you know, food, I would also venture into the realm of libations. Okay, so, sure. <laughs> so wine, that's definitely one of my, um, my passion. And Wine, you know, wine or other fermented alcohols, one of those things that could be bad for you if you overdo it. But if you enjoy it in a healthy way, it's good. Well, that's one of the- another fermented <laughs> item that I love. But, you know, if you ate a pound of chocolate every day, it probably wouldn't be good for you. Exactly. Well, and it goes the same way for all the other things, too. All the other fermented foods, if a person's eating a bunch of sauerkraut every single day, then eventually there might be a little too much. But that doesn't generally happen. Usually it's the chocolate and the wine. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because when I started practicing as a nutritionist, um, there was uh, one client of mine, you know, I, I, I share with her like, hey, you know, you should be eating sauerkraut every day. Well, I neglected to tell her that you should be eating sauerkraut every day, but in small amounts. <laughs> so she brought, you know, like jars of the live culture sauerkraut that you can get from, you know, good grocery stores. And I think her body must have been craving it or... She was just thinking I told her it was really good. So she was eating like a, a whole jar. She was going through a whole jar. Wow. And she called me after a week complaining to me, you know, hey, um, Karen, <laughs> I'm not feeling so good. And so we were engaged in a conversation going back and forth until I figured out that she was eating way too much sauerkraut every day. That is definitely important to remember. I guess I didn't, I, I thought of it more in like, in theory that it would be that way, but I, there you go. There is some... Uh, evidence that it's that it's the case and yeah well especially if you were not used to eating it i would suggest you know don't go through 
you know, two or three cups a day. Start with a small amount, you know, like maybe a, a third of a cup with each meal, even a little bit less if you've never experienced fermented foods on a regular basis, and then build up. Because it's almost like when you have too much of a good thing, then if you have a lot of bad gut uh, bacteria, you know, like candida yeast infection or some other microbes that are not healthy, they are not going to feel good when you are suddenly inundating your body with a lot of good bacteria. And so there, there could be a little battle that rages in your tummy, causing, yes. you know, initial upset. Yes. So if you're into intensity and you just want to war that battle out, then I guess eat a jar a day and, and deal with the consequences. But <laughs> yeah. So, well, thanks for being on the show today. I mean, this has been great. And uh, everyone needs to get out there and look at the the Kickstarter crowdsource Kickstarter page. And then otherwise, where should people be going to find out more about you, about crowdsource, about anything you want to plug? Sure. Uh, well, I am very excited to be a part of the Farm to Fermentation Festival, which is happening on August 24th in Santa Rosa, California. And you can find it at uh, farmtofermentation.com. We also have a Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and then search Crowdsource, all one word. We are also on Pinterest, on Twitter, on Instagram, and our website is www.crowd-source.com. But most of all, come to our Kickstarter website and, and check us out. And you know, if you have any questions, please feel free to send me an email. And do you have any closing thoughts on, say, the 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 future of, of kitchen gadgets like crowdsource or fermentation in general or any just parting words? Oh, you know what? Hey, there's one more thing. We are going to be part of the World Maker Fair in New York City under the Kickstarter tent. We are one of 15 creators that have been invited. So that's happening in September, this coming September in New York City, September 21st and 22nd. That's exciting. Yeah. That's so awesome. closing word, I want everyone to start fermenting. Just go for it. <laughs> Do it. Oh, and, and this crowdsource and it makes it easier. It makes it yeah. easier. Yes. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the plug, Ben. <laughs> so, awesome. Well, thanks again for being on the show. And uh, you'll find all these show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 78. And until next time, firm up. <laughs>